Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with The Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading Her Promise Broken by Annie S. Swan. This story was first published in the Annie Swan Annual in 1936 and is read for you today by friend editor Angela Gilchrist. Over to Angela. Hasn't Geoffrey come yet? Won't he be here soon, Lucia? The sick head moved uneasily on the pillow and the weary eyes turned once more with feverish anxiety and disappointment towards the door. The woman bending over the bed tried to soothe him. Not yet, darling. There has hardly been time, and we must always take into account that he may have left the last address he sent to Dick. We must think of all these possibilities and not be too impatient. You are sure you made the letter urgent, Lucia? You told the boy it was the last lap with his old father. He had reasons to be slow to forgive, but surely if you made the appeal strong enough, Kitty's boy would come. Darling, I told him exactly what you told me to say. Lucia Hillier loved her husband, and moreover, there were many reasons why she should regret his death. The chief, however, was that her reign at Clomber would be over. And you sent the cable after the letter, precisely worded, as I told you. Every word, darling, not one left out. Why do you look at me like that, Compton? Surely you don't think. She broke off there and put her hand over her eyes. The sick man's gaze hardly relaxed. It did not even soften. He had arrived at the hour when, if physical power permits it, the soul is unfettered and unafraid. Lucia, if I thought you have played me false here, he said quickly. But there, you would not dare. Clomber is for Geoffrey. He ought never to have gone away, and in anger too. Oh, Lucia, bring him back, and Clomber will bless you, and I shall rest at peace in my grave. The effort exhausted him, and he fell back on his pillow, and the lids dropped over his tired eyes, and no further word passed his lips. It was his last effort, and before the day closed, all was over at Clomber, and one more name had to be added to the list of its honoured dead. The new-made widow, whom the squire of Clomber had married late in life, much to the regret and disapproval of the whole neighbourhood, comported herself with all the dignity suitable to the occasion and to her own imagined position as mother of Clomber's heir. She had one son, a little boy of nine, a sweet-faced, eager child, and the whole passion of her soul had been centred on one idea, one hope, one resolve, that her boy should inherit Clomber. But now all was over and she had failed. While Compton Hillier had been strictly just and had made ample provision for his second wife and her son, he had safeguarded the position by leaving Clomber to his eldest son. As Lucia sat in the fading light of a November afternoon, awaiting the arrival of old Cumberbatch, the Lamport lawyer who conducted Clomber affairs, her face wore a somewhat hawk-like expression. Mr Cumberbatch was a smallish man with a very large head, surmounted by a shock of snow-white hair, a reddish face with big hatchet-like features and a pair of the keenest blue eyes ever seen in human face. He bowed with the utmost courtesy to Mrs Hillier, but they did not shake hands. The end came suddenly at the last, Mrs Hillier, he said, in his suave tones of regret. It generally does, Mr Cumberbatch, she answered with a faintly disagreeable smile, which immediately reflected itself on the lawyer's face. There was no love lost between these two. In fact, there had been nothing but a kind of armed neutrality since the day Cumberbatch had seen her first in her professional garb when she came to Clomber for the purpose of nursing the squire's first wife. When the trouble with Geoffrey came, and he was banished from his father's house for a crime which few people believed he had ever committed. Cumberbatch had only once forgotten himself so far as to say that had the second Mrs Hillier not been at Clomber, the thing would never have happened. 
The squire flew into a terrific passion then and warned Cumberbatch that any future lapse of the same kind would bring the old connection between his firm and Clomber to an end. During the squire's illness, he had been kept religiously on the outside and he had no means of knowing whether there had been any relenting on Compton Hillier's part towards his firstborn at the last. He would never know now, nor was he aware that the letter and later the cable which Compton Hillier had entrusted to his wife for transmission to the only address they had ever had of Jeffreys had not been sent. Mr Hillier, I suppose, expressed no wish to see me just before the end, observed the lawyer, when the silence became a trifle embarrassing. None, she answered quietly. Nor mention his son Geoffrey's name? He spoke of him occasionally, yes, but there was nothing in the shape of instructions, Mr Cumberbatch. Then the will stands as it did last March, when we went over it together in this very room. I take it we had better advertise in the colonial papers for Mr Geoffrey. If that is the usual procedure, Mr Cumberbatch, pray do so, she said coldly. May I ask what is the latest address you have had from Mr Geoffrey? There is none later than a place called Parduvine in British Columbia, and in that letter he said he was leaving the country altogether and for good, but he did not state what was his destination. May I ask whether the letter was written to his father? No, it was to my son, Dick. The lawyer looked the surprise he felt, but Mrs Hillier took no steps to satisfy his curiosity. There had been an extraordinary bond of affection between the half-brothers, and Dick cherished the memory of Geoffrey with something of that passionate hero-worship lads so often bestow on those a little older than themselves, sometimes for no known reason. Clomber, of course, belongs to Mr Geoffrey, and it was the squire's wish that you should go and live at Low Gill with your boy. I intend to remain here in the meantime, however. Until we have definite news of Geoffrey, you would not expect me to leave Clomber, I hope. Oh no, certainly not, but after all, it can only be a matter of a few months. Well, there is no particular need to prolong this interview, Mrs Hillier. Is there anything else I can do for you? Help you in any way with the arrangements for the funeral, or help you to make a list? No, thank you. I can make all arrangements myself, Mr Cumberbatch, she answered, without any further word of thanks. Cumberbatch smiled to himself as he walked down the drive a little later. She had shown him as plainly as possible that she considered his reign at Clomber over, but that in no way perturbed the astute old lawyer, who was able to read her superficial mind like an open book. The next day, Dick came home from school. His first question when he entered the house was not of grief for his father or concern for his mother, but simply, Has Jeff come back? Jeff? My dear, nobody knows where he is. He has been cabled for and there has been no answer. Probably he is dead. The lad's face went a little white and his wide grey eyes a little stormy. Oh, I say, mother, that couldn't happen, you know. Fellows like Jeff don't die unless they... He added slowly, and a sort of tether gathered in his eyes, unless they happen to get shot or killed. Very likely that is what has happened, said Lucia Hillier, calmly and coldly. I don't think so, was Dick's confident retort. You see, Jeff said quite positively he was coming back. Lucia Hillier studied her boy's face intently. Hitherto he had not counted actively in the scheme of things. She had used him as a puppet for her own ends, and now it dawned upon her that he might have a personality of his own. Tell me exactly what Geoffrey said, Dick, she said. It is important that Mr Cumberbatch and I should know. Cumberbatch, repeated the lad loftily. He's an old owl. I hate the way he glares at people. Jeff came in my room the night he went away. It was in the middle of the night, mother, and the moon was all across the floor. He said a lot of things, among others that I was to hold tight till he came back, and that he'd never change. Change from what? His evil ways? Suddenly, and to Lucia's astonishment, Dick brought his fist down on the table with a bang. Don't you say that about Jeff, mother. It's old Cumberbatch or some other liar that has been putting it into you. Jeff was the best fellow in the world, and of course he's coming back. Doubtful, said Lucia dryly. Anyhow, until he chooses to do so, we shall have to go on as if he didn't exist. You will have clomber if Jeff doesn't come back, Dick.
For a clever woman, her methods were clumsy, but that was because she had no understanding of the heart of a boy. Clomber? No such thing. It's Jeff's. I don't want it. He loved every stick and stone of it. He said it that night before he went away, and that he and I would have some rare old times when he came back. Having got it into his head that old Cumberbatch was partly responsible for Jeff's absence, Dick watched out for him and managed to get a word with him after the dreary ceremony of the funeral was over. I say, Mr Cumberbatch, he began, I want to ask you something. Yes, Mr Dick, what's that? asked the lawyer. It's about my brother Jeff. He will come back, won't he? Yes, Mr Dick, I hope so. We are doing what we can to bring him. And you don't think anything has happened to him? That he has got shot or anything, do you? He asked so eagerly and wistfully that the old lawyer felt his heart oddly stirred. Oh no, Mr Dick, at least we hope not. We are taking steps to find him. So that he will come here and live at Clomber? It's his, isn't it? Yes, Mr Dick, if he is alive. Oh, but he must be alive. We can't let Jeff be dead. When you know his address, will you give it to me, Mr Cumberbatch? I must write to him myself. You want him to come back then, Mr Dick? Oh, I do. I lie awake at night, wondering what it would be like to see him come in at the door like he did that horrible night he went away, said the boy, and his voice vibrated with pain. Please don't mind my asking you, Mr Cumberbatch, but I do want him so awfully, so please hurry up. The lawyer's eyes were soft, and after that he took the greatest interest in the boy, and they often talked together, Geoffrey Hillier being the inevitable theme of their talk. Weeks and months flew on, aye and years, and Geoffrey Hillier returned no more to his own. Apparently, all the machinery set in motion for his discovery had failed. Lucia accepted it all as a gift from the gods, which she had deserved and could appreciate. Her son, however, was something of a thorn in the flesh. He had such odd ideas and never would permit her to speak as if Clomber was anything more than a mere wayside inn where they were sojourning a little before the rightful owner came back. It's absurd, Dick, she said angrily one day. How can Geoffrey be alive still? Every possible means has been taken to find him and they have failed. Of course he is dead. Probably he was dead before your father died. But she lied when she said that, because in the last week of Compton Hillier's life, a letter had come from Geoffrey, stating his plans for the future and giving his fresh address. It had been written to Dick, and Dick had never seen it. Had the cable been sent then to its proper destination, there is no manner of doubt but that Geoffrey Hillier would now be reigning in his father's stead. But all that was ancient history now, and Lucia Hillier was never visited by any qualms. Destiny had played into her hands, that was all, and if only Dick would not be so foolish, all would go on merrily. From school he went to Oxford, and it was when he came home at the long vacation that he called one day at the lawyer's office in Lamport to proffer a strange request. Mr Cumberbatch, could I have a hundred pounds, do you think, next week? What for? Mr Hillier asked the lawyer, blinking over his heavy-rimmed spectacles. I want to go out to British Columbia to find out about Jeff. But my dear boy, began the lawyer, but Dick put up his hand. A fellow I know whose people live at Victoria is sailing next Friday. I'm going with him. My mother does not approve of it, but hang it all, I'm 19. And besides, I want to be satisfied about my brother. If he's dead, somebody must know about it, and I'll never settle here until I know for certain. You can have the money, of course, Mr Dick, and... And God bless you, said the lawyer, as he violently blew his nose. Dick made no secret to his mother of the object and intention of his voyage, and they parted rather coolly. There was something about Dick Hillier, some crystal purity of vision, which made him distrust his mother, and while the pain was poignant in one sense, it did not blind him to his duty. Believing as he did that Geoffrey was alive, he could not settle down to enjoy what was Geoffrey's inheritance, and the day was coming when he would have to take his place publicly. Already, preparations for the celebration of his coming of age were in the air. Before that came, he must satisfy himself so far as was humanly possible that Geoffrey was no longer alive. It was the first Friday in July on which Dick Hillier sailed for Canada, 
and his mother did not much enjoy her summer at home. She discovered that she was a very lonely woman as well as an unhappy one. What she did not realise was that she was beginning to pay the price for having broken her faith with a dying man. Dick sent various postcards from the points at which he stopped and appeared to be taking a healthy and intelligent interest in the new country. But after he got quite far west, only one letter came, then communications ceased for over three weeks. Consumed with the fiercest anxiety, which gave her to understand something of the corroding heart hunger that had embittered her husband's deathbed, Lucia cabled frantically to Vancouver, only to be informed that young Mr Hillier had left the hotel three weeks before, leaving no address. There followed for her a period of sharp and searching apprehension. A few more weeks passed away, then one evening in late September, as Lucia was sitting at the open casement window of her boudoir, which opened on a wide balcony, she beheld a taxi piled with luggage driving up the avenue. She sprang up and watched, but could see no one until it came to the terrace steps. Then she stepped out onto the balcony, holding her hand to her heart, and saw Dick alight first, bareheaded and brown, and laughing merrily as he helped out a little sturdy chap in a navy blue coat, then a little mite of a girl in a white furry coat, then last of all a woman. Behind her stepped forth a big, broad-shouldered man with a lean, handsome, unforgettable face. Geoffrey Hillier, his wife and family, marshalled by Dick with all the pride in life. Catching sight of his mother, he waved his cap joyously. Got him all, mother, more than I bargained for. Do hustle down and get introduced to these little beggars. Lucia stepped back, but she did not hustle down. Her face was quite white, her mouth twitching nervously. Fear, even, was lurking in her eyes. She was afraid of Geoffrey Hillier, for she had something to hide. But presently, up the stairs several times at a time, came Dick, bounding into her room to clasp her, his mother, in his arms. Nothing mattered now he had got home, bearing Geoffrey and all his belongings triumphantly in his train. Hello, mother. Thought I was lost, eh? Well, so I was for a bit, hunting for old Jeff at the back of beyond. But it was simply ripping, and I had an awful job to get him to pull up stakes. But he's here. Awfully jolly little wife. She belongs to the Somerset Pointers and was out there keeping house for a brother on a ranch when Jeff met her. Come down and bid them all welcome. And I say, mother, do it with all your heart, for somehow... Somehow things have never been square before. Square them now. It was the only hint of reproach or suspicion Dick ever cast, and it was the last. Lucia swallowed something in her throat. You are an amazing person, and you've destroyed your whole future by this chaotic act. But I suppose it was square. Take me down. It was a crucial moment, but Lucia Hillier came out of it well. Geoffrey was inclined to be a little cool, but when he saw her welcome to his wife and children, he thawed a little, and the meeting was got over more comfortably than might have been expected. The children saved the situation, that being their particular ministry on earth. Quite late that night, after everybody had gone to bed but Geoffrey Hillier, when she watched Dick climbing the stairs whistling happily, Lucia stole down to the library. Before we sleep, Geoffrey... I thought we'd better get to close quarters, she began, in a quiet, even voice. I dare say you understand that I was not anxious for your return to Clomber. I suppose I did understand that, answered Geoffrey rather guardedly, for he was not sure what this might pretend on the part of his father's widow. Dick wants things squared, she said. I am the only person that can square them, and I will. Your father forgave everything before he died, Geoffrey and took back all the hard things he had said to you, and repented him of every one. Then he begged me to write and cable for you. I wrote the letter and the cable, but sent neither. The colour rose in Geoffrey Hillier's face. Perhaps they would never have reached me in any case. I went up country about that time, right into the interior, where there are neither posts nor cables, he said, trying to speak quietly, but his utterance was a little thick. I did not even give you the chance to get them. The letter and the cable are here. She drew them from the wide pocket of her silk dressing gown and laid them on the table. He died with his heart full of love and longing for you, Geoffrey, 
but I wanted Clomber for my son. But Dick would have none of it. He neither shared nor approved my ambition, and so he has brought you back. I thought I would not sleep tonight without telling you. Of course you will expect me to leave your house tomorrow morning, and I will do so, asking only one favour. What is that? That you do not tell Dick. That would be a very poor return for all that Dick has done for me, the dear old chap. Shall we shake hands on it, Mrs Hillier, and bury the hatchet? You were most awfully sweet to Edie tonight, and you might easily have been different. Let's bury it all and begin again. Tears rose to Lucia's eyes as she turned away. The straight path is best, Geoffrey. There is nothing but bitterness and misery in the crooked one. Thank you. I think you will find that we have taken care of Clomber, and I wish you many happy years in it. She held out her hand. Geoffrey bent forward and kissed her cheek. So peace was made, and Dick, hilariously happy for the rest of the term, wondered at the lovely change that had come over his mother, at her joy in the children, and her satisfaction at the prospect of making a fresh home at Low Gill. That he had himself done anything out of the common never occurred to him. He had got his brother back, and a small addition of him to spoil to his heart's content. He never knew of what had passed between Geoffrey and his mother. All he cared was that everybody seemed happy and at peace, and life had suddenly become far more worth living than it had ever been yet. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. We recently asked some members of the Oddfellows to call in and let us know what qualities they look for in a friend, and we're delighted to be able to share some of their answers. Hi, I'm Anne, an Oddfellows member from Flintshire. A friend is someone who is a good listener and always makes you smile. Hi, this is Alex. I'm an Oddfellows member from Russell White. A friend should be someone you can have good fun with and laughs and jokes and you know, wall away the hours and not have to worry. Deborah Haley, Halifax, and the answer is a good listener and a good sense of humour is always a bonus. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, the Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of season two of Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends Story Podcast. Uh, My name is Ian. Today I'm joined by friend editor Angela. Hello Angela. Hello Ian. And uh, also DC Thompson archivist David. Hello David. Hi. uh. And for the first time in in the history of Reading Between the Lines we have a guest, Charlotte Lauder, a PhD student at the University of Strathclyde and the National Library of Scotland. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So we're here to talk about um, a story by Annie S. Swan, who is a a star of The People's Friend, really. Um, For approximately 60 years, she was writing stories in The People's Friend. And in fact, this story came from an annual bearing her name, which, which kind of gives you an impression about how important she is to the history of our magazine. I thought, seen as we have the editor of the magazine and uh, the archivist from DC Thompson and an expert on women's magazine fiction. We would have a chat first about Annie herself. Um, I'll probably start with you, Angela. What, maybe what does Annie mean to the magazine is the best place to start? I think you can't really talk about The People's Friend without mentioning Annie S. Swan because she, for many, many years, was the number one contributor to the magazine. She was a massive personality. She was probably the first 
celebrity author, certainly to be associated with the People's Friend. And the readers absolutely loved her. And as you've already said, she was so well known that she had an annual named after her, which was produced uh, many years, um, every year at a time, obviously. And uh, she just was a towering figure, not just in The People's Friend, but in Scottish literature of the period as well. So the archives, David, must be running over with Annie Swan material. Not as much as I would like, oddly enough. We've got the kind of full, kind of her publication, so both her novels that she wrote, which were pretty prolific, that were published by John Lang and Co. Um, but we've got her the full run of her annuals, which started in 1925 and ran up to 1943 when she passed away. And they became the People's Friend Annual, which still continues today. And one of the regular inquiries that we get through to the archives is, when did the People's Friend Annual start? Because I want to make sure that I've got a full collection. Um, and so, yeah, we can take it back to all the way back to 1925 and Annie. On the archive side of stuff, we do have a bit of archival correspondence with Annie and her association with us, but not much of it sadly has survived or certainly not as much as I'm sure someone like Charlotte as a researcher would have appreciated. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably fair to say, Charlotte. A little bit. Yeah, there is some others, um, you know, scattered around Scotland. Something I wasn't sure about with this, and I don't know from reading around, I'm not sure because there was the Annie... S1 magazine that ran up till about the 1920s which I'm assuming when she stopped doing that we took on the annual because it was the magazine was published by a different publisher and I wasn't sure what level her editorial input would have to it or whether we were just using the celebrity name for want of a better way of putting it so whether she did have a hand in selecting these pieces that appear or whether it was really left to somebody in Dundee in the offices of the editorial to do it and then it was picked up and approved by her. Do you think the editorial meetings where she would sit there and say, I think we'll have another one of mine in this issue? <laughs> <laughs> the impression I got looking at some of the correspondence, I think, I think I'm right in saying this. God help me if I'm wrong. There's that sometimes she wasn't 100% sure what she contributed to the People's Friend and what she contributed to other people. She wasn't <laughs> a very good record keeper herself as knowing what she'd done. <laughs> so Because she was so prolific and it was going out to all sorts of weird and wonderful places. Um, yeah, she could, didn't quite remember. Charlotte, speaking of uh, if, if she was so prolific that she was losing track of things she was writing, um, I wanted to maybe ask you what you'd come across in the research that you've been doing about how Annie fitted in in that fiction landscape at the time that she was writing. Annie is very typical of the um, of a career of a Scottish uh, novelist or writer from that kind of late Victorian early 20th century period. So she's born in 1859 in Gorebridge, just outside Edinburgh. And she starts writing um, mainly poetry to um, newspapers like the Edinburgh Evening News and the Glasgow Herald. And then also um, a religious uh, publication called The Christian Leader. And that's very typical for a lot of um, Scottish writers of that period. Um, she then um, publishes in The People's Friend in 1881, and that's really the beginning of her career. And so from there, um, you know, uh, until her death, as David mentioned, probably at least one serial novel is in the magazine um, per year. So it's probably something like, I don't know, 100 or 150 novels that she contributes. Um, so that's that's really prolific. Um, and she is very typical of a kind of magazine um, writer. So she begins in magazines, she ends up uh, also publishing novels. And, and so on the surface, she's very typical. But at the same time, she was a very contradictory person, a very kind of multifaceted person. So she was involved in uh, suffragism and she was involved in the eventual formation of the Scottish National Party in 1934. She also tried unsuccessfully uh, to represent the Mary Hill district of Glasgow as a Liberal candidate in the uh, 1922 election. So she's at the same time as she's uh, a very typical writer, writing romance fiction, uh, rural fiction, fiction that's for women, you know, her kind of private life, uh, or maybe we might call it her personal persona, is also very different. So I would say she's unique in that sense that she's kind of this, this she's got this duality behind her. It certainly sounds like a fascinating person. And the, the terrifying thing is I've been working on a single short story since I was about 25 and it's nowhere near completion. <laughs> 
it's not good to be made feel like a failure by someone who's been dead for 70 years. <laughs> this is where you all rush in and tell me I'm not a failure. But you're only 25 and a half now, so surely it's like you've got plenty of time to go. <laughs> I've just gone prematurely grey. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, we'll we'll move on to the story because uh, some of what you were saying there, Charlotte, actually reminds me of the thoughts I was having when I was reading this story and when um, I had forced Angela to read it um, because I thought this story, it was definitely not what I expected. Um, I hadn't read an awful lot of Annie's stuff before, but I kind of expected that stereotypical rural fiction thing. It was going to be a, a, a nice pastoral romance and in the end she was going to get together with the postman or, or something like that. <laughs> um, and this story is, for at least for the majority of it, is, is far from that. Mm. Perhaps we'll actually start with a, a matter of pronunciation. Lucia or Lucia? What do you think? I swivel between the two, depending on how I'm feeling at a given moment. <laughs> That's what Angela was doing reading the story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I find that quite a difficult one to get straight in my head. So yes, you're right. I did sway between the two as well. Um, I think I was, well, we finally settled on Lucia, I think, didn't we? Um, but I was swayed by the novels of E.F. Benson, I think, which um, are about characters called Map and Lucia. And in that, she's... She's very definitely Lucia, uh, pronounced the Italian way. So I had to get that out of my head and uh, go with Lucia instead. But um, yeah, interesting. Watchers now use both for the, for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you'll be watching now. <laughs> I actually think, though, that, you know, just to, to look at this story, the choice of names that um, Annie has selected for her characters is quite interesting and possibly quite revealing about the characters as well, because we have... The, the protagonist who is, um, shall we say, quite a, a hard woman, um, maybe a little bit um, of a pretentious woman who um, is very keen on appearances and possessions um, with maybe what some people might have considered a pretentious name, as in we can't even decide how to, to say it. Is it Lucia or <laughs> Lucia? Whereas her son, who is um, an absolute treasure of a boy, has the very no-nonsense name of Dick. So um, I thought that was quite interesting. And also, the, the without giving too much away about the story, before we um, talk about it in more depth, the, the first wife of um, the, the dying man, who um, was Jeffrey's mother, has the very warm and no-nonsense name of Kitty. So I thought it was quite an interesting choice of character names. So maybe it should be Lucia, because it's a bit harder. Lucia is a bit more soft, isn't it? Lucia feels like you deserve it. Lucia feels like you're putting it mm. on. <laughs> With apologies to anyone called Lucia who's listening to this podcast. Wait for the letters to come in. <laughs> um, so what do we think about the start of the story? Because not many stories in The People's Friend commence with a dying man. I think that's a fairly arresting thing to happen at the very beginning of a story. It is a really powerful first scene and it's probably something we wouldn't we wouldn't print in The People's Friend today, to be perfectly honest. I'm not sure we would. Um, we would publish a story that started with a deathbed scene. Um, so it's quite interesting as a choice. I thought it was very typical, actually, um, when I read it, because it made me think of... Um it made me think of her her other novel, which is A Vexed Inheritance, which I think uh, The People's Friend brought out yes. uh, maybe last year or the year before as like a in the classics collection. Mm -hmm. So it made me think of that novel because that also starts with a deathbed scene and that's also written by uh, Annie. So I kind of thought, oh, here we go. It's Annie trailing out the usual again here we go <laughs> so I actually kind of the minute I started reading it I thought yeah I kind of I can see where this is going it's you know it's a typical um inheritance story you know where in the end the uh you know the pauper mill girl ends up you know being the the, the heiress so I kind of thought I maybe thought that's where it was going but yeah. you know we can maybe chat about that I thought it was a good way of revealing stuff about our friend Lucia um, because it puts her immediately in an, a very emotional situation and it reveals a little bit about her where it says, it, it kind of reveals it in stages. I was When I was reading the story, I thought, oh yeah, I know who that character is. And then something else came up and I thought, oh, that's maybe slightly different. And then something else came up and I thought, well, I have no idea where this is going. 
Um, <laughs> I had a similar kind. Of, I had a similar thing to you, Ian. It was just like I thought. I liked the reveal. This kind of slow reveal. It's like, what's the backstory? What's going on? And then thought, oh my god, she really is actually quite a hard, a hard nosed. What's the word? I don't know. I can't say it politely. I don't think. <laughs> but yeah, not a word that would be used in the people's friend. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was quite like Machiavellian. I think that's the way I would kind of go with it. Is that she's kind of, you know, controlling it from the kind of background, maybe the puppeteer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's actually what makes it a slightly more unusual story. Even though I said it was quite typical of Annie, I think the fact that the woman is in the wrong is quite an unusual thing for her to write mm-hmm. because I think if you look back at, at what Annie's written, normally um, a female character is is quite a good person. She's innocent or she, she doesn't come to any kind of um, harm and she's not doing harm to others. So maybe in that way, actually, this is, this is quite a, an unusual character for a woman to be, which is... Um, ultimately quite kind of maybe backstabbing is the word I don't actually know. you just ticked off two words on my kind of like bingo list that i've got in front of me machiavellian was one of them <laughs> that she's very much out for like means to an end to get there because the the one person she truly loves in this is is her son um but uh, and the other word i got is puppet because actually he's referred to as a puppet and i i did think that she she obviously really really cares about her son really wants the best for him really wants to for his future and then she kind of writes him off at one point as just saying, well, she just, she'd just seen him as a puppet up to that point. I thought, ooh. <laughs> it's like, oh, he, he does have a personality of his own. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like those, those reveals, like, because at, at the beginning it says she loved her husband and then it goes down a bit further and it says she wanted her son to inherit uh, Clomber and mm-hmm. then it goes down a bit further and it says she didn't bother sending the telegram or the letter. That's right. Um, so you've got the kind of three stages there. And then it's the same with her son. You get the impression from all of that she loves her son. And then suddenly there's this line where she goes, who's this guy that I've been trying to use for my own ends for ages? <laughs> giving me stick. Yeah. It's, it actually says she'd used him as a puppet for her own ends. He's quite an, an eloquent nine-year-old. Mm. I found, which I kind of really liked. It's like, um, and I think he's. I, mean, I did have to go double check. Was you know whether Annie was actually a mother, and she, and she lost her son when her son was sixteen in a, a shooting accident. I think it was. It's awful. So she she obviously has experience of nine year olds. I don't know. She might have been too busy writing. I don't know. He might have been packed off to boarding school. I don't know. <laughs> I, I found him quite a not precocious, but yeah, he's definitely a a wordy child. I also I thought there was another word that he used when he was like 19. I said something like, uh, hang it all. I'm 19. You don't tell me what to do. So maybe, yeah, later on in the story, he says, my mother does not approve of it, but hang it all. I'm 19. And besides, I want to be satisfied about my brother. So I think you're right, David. He's very precocious. He's very... Uh, single-minded yes it's there are not many stories uh, these days you see that use the word ripping <laughs> why, why don't we have any ripping yarns anymore <laughs> which is he obviously well maybe he gets that from his mother but he's got the the glass is half full rather than the glass is half empty approach um uh but he he always seems quite innocent with it i mean the one thing that got me through all of this that he never questions his mother at any point he never questions um you know whether she's done something bad and admittedly we know because we've got that through the story we know what's going on but there's only that one time where he has a you know when he says something about squaring it up is the only time that um he really kind of raises anything with his mother where he's putting her in a place a little bit i wondered i wondered reading that line whether that revealed that he knew what had happened all along there's something about the way that that line is phrased where he says, um, I'm trying to find it here, but it, it's something along the lines of, for some reason, things have never been square. And I took that to be a bit more ominous than just kind of him wondering what's happening. I kind of thought that was a a, a hard stare moment. And uh, for some reason, mother, <laughs> things have never been square. <laughs> I don't know why, but maybe you want to fix it. Well, he, he did, you know, before um, Jeffrey disappeared off in whatever happened, because we never get the backstory. And he went into the room and said before he kind of disappears, like, I still love you, brother. I'm going away now. So obviously there's something nagging away. It's interesting, isn't it? And they have had, what, a week 
at least sat together on an ocean liner, presumably coming back from the New World to, or from Canada to, to the UK. Yeah, where you might have asked him. So there must have been some conversations where some hints are dropped. But having said that, Jeffrey seems, seems to keep a lot to his chest. You know, he doesn't give much away to the point, actually, I get quite annoyed with Jeffrey at times. I get extremely <laughs> annoyed with Jeffrey at the end, but we'll come to that. <laughs> We're speaking about precocious children, and I remember when I was a sub a little while ago on the magazine, um, people would write in stories with children in them, and they would be the least believable children you'd ever experienced in your life. They would be uh, ab- about as verbose as Annie is here, with incredibly long, complex words and themes that they were exploring that were incredibly unlikely <laughs> production editor judy would uh, go nuts and go through it with an axe and chop the kid down to being vaguely like a child and i did wonder if she'd read this story if she would have similar feelings i i think she probably would i think that that dick does not sound very childlike but but maybe by 1936 standards it would have been a little bit more normal for a child to sound like dick <laughs> And he's also coming from, you know, a landed gentry-esque mm-hmm. kind of family. So he would have presumably been pretty well educated for the period. I think it's even um, slightly more simpler than that, actually. I think it's more, you know, um, what's that phrase? Out of the mouth of babes, it's always true. So I think it's it's maybe more just a, a, a technique in writing where if it comes from a child, you know that it's true. Because if you have a child in a story that's lying, that's a completely different story, and and the whole kind of plot would be much would be very different. So I think in this in this scenario, it's Annie using a child to kind of tell the reader this is what the plot is, this is what's going on. You know, if you haven't if you haven't caught on, then I'm going to tell you. So I think it's more about yeah, using a child as a kind of as a vehicle to get to 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 get the the kind of um the truth out there actually that makes sense because his mother you can't trust a word that comes out of her mouth exactly yeah <laughs> um so you know so they, they, they are very very um black and white characters in that way and no one trusts lawyers so you're not going to trust what cumberbatch has to i really like the lawyer in this oh i thought he was great <laughs> <laughs> i think he's great I could I could picture him with his kind of what was it she said his smallish man with a giant head yes or, or big hatchet like features <laughs> and it's like um and that he's kind of re- referred to as, as like, he's a he's an owl isn't he whereas um Lucia Lucia is a, a hawk yeah. and in some ways you kind of expect it the other way around. Oh, I never picked up on that. See, that GCSE and A-level English literature qualification came in useful eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I I really liked the descriptions of Cumberbatch. I actually wrote it down that, you know, he she does do a really good job of summing up his character through his appearance. I think that was really skillfully done. Um, and I also liked the the slightly moralistic narration tone that that was around that. So there was a a statement about him that he was able to read her superficial mind like an open book. Yeah. Mm. Um, It's quite quite a cutting comment. I I thought he was very, I thought he was quite kind of, I don't want to use the word evil, but I, I thought he was quite kind of, yeah, nasty. I understand a lawyer would be present at the death of a, a landed, you know, member of the, the gentry or something like that but I thought oh I was like why is he turning up and and I think he's kind of there to make her look less bad you know for want of a better phrase I think he's slightly creepy he's kind of there just making sure that his involvement in the story and the facts that he knows about the letter and the telegram and whether it's been sent I think he's turning up to be to kind of to make sure that he'll actually keep everything secret so that he can eventually probably remain her lawyer and then obviously kind of use her uh, as like a cash cow <laughs> to pay for his lawyer's fees. Oh, I didn't see it that way. I thought he made her look worse oh. because he knows exactly what she's up to and hence why, you know, he can read her like a book or something like that was the line, wasn't it, that mm-hmm. Angela mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that's what it was like. And actually the bit that I really liked about him was a little bit later on where it after the funeral, there's something where... Um, He's speaking to Dick and he, he suddenly takes a real warmth to Dick because you can see that Dick's got some something going on there and that it's almost like he's, he's going to be a, a godfather, mm. you know, that kind of role. Um, 
And so I, yeah, I really want to come back. So I kind of wanted, I, I could imagine him having his own series. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like Midsummer Murders. He's always going to turn up somewhere. Just whenever anybody dies. I think that's exactly what he'll do. He'll just slink off into the night and find the next, like, <laughs> dead earl and just suddenly become his lawyer and be like oh you need me to be your lawyer and manage your estate no problem that's fine i'll sort it out let me just write myself into your will i wonder if there's a series of spin-offs that annie has written about cumberbatch and if not should we start them i do you know i think there's probably like five thousand characters that that pop in in her you know, in her whole bibliography, there's probably like 5,000 characters that could have a spin-off series because she's got that many stories, that many uh, ulterior plot points and sub-stories and all these different characters. I think you could very easily create a whole kind of Annie Swan world where you just locate these people and who they might be and the lives that they've lived. Can we do it like the Bond novels, how Sebastian Fox has been writing them? Can we get someone else to write as Annie for the next instead of the next classics collection gosh they would need to practice their long sentences and um, using 25 words instead of just one or two (laughs) what was your favorite line angela to tackle when you were reading this oh gosh i don't know um there were a lot of tongue twisting sentences there and a lot of the construction was very florid and quite um quite formal really it was like she had peppered the whole story with with difficult phrases and (laughs) sentences that went on for lines and lines and lines you actually didn't know where to breathe (laughs) which was a bit of a problem but my first my favorite sentence in the whole uh, story and it wasn't one that that was particularly difficult to read was about the the small children that came back with Jeffrey um, as part of his family and uh, it was just the the narrator of the story or the narrative voice uh, said the children saved the situation that being their particular ministry on earth <laughs> just love that line but at least they weren't overly verbose like they're half they're, what their step uncle <laughs> exactly they didn't get to speak at all they didn't utter a word. <laughs> I also really love that line because I think it's so Annie to like, you know, put a little hint in there, you know, saying like, if you have nasty children, that's bad. You should have lovely children who save the day every day. So it's just kind of a little <laughs> reminder to be like, oh my God, I've got to get my children in order, you know, as you're taking your time out from, you know, washing the dishes, sitting down with the friend. I think it's like a little kind of moralistic reminder to to get your kids in order. This is how they should be, especially after a really long voyage and travel. Yes. <laughs> in a completely new country, yeah. I suppose, I mean, we're, we're laughing, but every kid in this story comes out well. Jeffrey seems like a nice chap although i would call him other things by the time we get to the end of the story um dick is very nice and these kids are seen and not heard whereas the adults you know if you if you subscribe to charlotte's somewhat cynical view of him yeah, um he's not to be trusted um there, there's a hint with um compton who's the the chap who dies at the beginning he where he accuses lucia of um not sending the telegram to Jeffrey, and then he goes, ah, but you wouldn't dare. And I wondered whether there was a hint of menace to that. I wondered if he was a bully. I, you know, especially with the the, the fallout with Jeffrey that led to Jeffrey leaving, though that could, from the what we heard from Cumberbatch, could be something that Lucia... You did warn us you were going to do that. Her? Yeah. It might be something that she instigated or it wouldn't have happened if she hadn't been there. Yeah, there was some... But there was a really interesting little nugget about how Lucia had come to be married to Compton in the first place. And she had been the nurse for Kitty, his first wife, on her deathbed. And so he had obviously fallen for the nurse and and married her. And I did wonder if, I'm not really trying to to be in her corner, but, you know, instead of just her being an out-and-out cold-hearted monster out for what she could get, if she had been the nurse and she 
she might not have been from the the highest station in life and here she found herself married to a wealthy man and in possession of this stately home and and all these worldly goods and I suppose back in 1936 that would have been quite a compelling thing that she would want to hang on to in the absence of any kind of safety net to look after widows once their husbands had left the world and you know so she does come across as really grasping and cold and mercenary but I think perhaps there might be might be something in her background that could certainly explain that behaviour if not excuse it. There was I thought it was really interesting going back to the beginning of the story where one of the first kind of bits of background that we get is that uh, Lucia loved her husband um, and that's kind of stated really explicitly at the beginning of a sentence but at the, 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 the next sentence is but uh, the chief worry was that she was going to lose her reign over the house so I see so there is a statement there that Annie's telling us that she did actually care for this man but obviously she cares for the welfare of her child possibly because of her own background or something even more and that leads her to do what she does. Including attempt incredibly clumsily to manipulate her own son by approaching a nine-year-old child who says, where's my brother? And saying, he's probably dead. <laughs> that was a bit hard. <laughs> that's really harsh. That was When I got to that bit, I was like, Whoa, that's a bit strong. You couldn't have said, oh, he's away somewhere. You had to go straight to, he's probably been shot because that happens when you leave the country. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, it would be like shot by me. Would you be that I was thinking? <laughs> He's probably been shot by that man I paid to track him down and shoot him. Uh, but I felt I thought she was really manipulative towards him. She was really trying to twist him. It's like, oh, you know, you must tell me because Mister Cumberbatch needs to know, and that's the way of kind of you know getting private information out of a younger person is by using authority figures to make you scared. And I thought, oh, she's using tricks here, mm-hmm. and I could understand why she was doing it in order to kind of make sure that he gets what she wants him to have but not nice it's interesting this story when considering some of the stories that we talked about in season one um and charlotte if you haven't listened to season one you should go and do it immediately it's wonderful (laughs) i have i absolutely have we we did a couple of stories in season one where um the main characters were not nice people the the one i'm thinking of in particular was called uh the story of a masterpiece and it was about an art, an artist who was painting the um, the scullery maid who he then married to make sure he could keep painting, um, and he was a horrendous person. And the <laughs> the whole I think the whole episode we spent just going, what a horrible person that guy is. Um, and I think that this is much, or at least a little more ambiguous. As Angela was saying, there's maybe a societal reason why she's doing what she's doing. Annie explicitly states that she loves her son. She has this little period where she thinks, uh, oh, I want him back. Where is he? I'm really worried about him. It's all been very deliberate. And Annie's trying to make you think about maybe the societal pressures that would be on someone like that. Uh, And is that why, here is a question I will now pose you, is that why it all works out fine in the end? (laughs) Yes, I think so. Absolutely. I think the purpose of this story is to say to the reader of The People's Friend in 1936, and also, you know, for us now uh, reading it, that family feuds can be worked out with a little bit of honesty and a little bit of persistence and hope. And actually, you can get over um, your disagreements and you can get over uh, the kind of uh, shadiness that you might have uh, encouraged within a family as long as you are a good person and you kind of are uh, regretful for the things you've done at the end. To me, that's the message. Repent and thou shalt be saved. Exactly. Typically, very religious theme, you know, which Annie was um, very, very keen on throughout her life. And I think absolutely typical, too, of her writing, that there would be a strong moral message at the end. You know, she's she she does like to instruct. There's something in this as well. I mean, the moral message is definitely there, but you get to that bit where she's hanging around and waiting for um, Dick to potentially come home or to make contact. And... Um, where you really think it's like, no, it's all going to unravel. And I thought, no, she's going to get a comeuppance, which in some ways for me as a modern reader, when I read the way that the story does pan out, I thought, oh, she kind of got away with it. 
And I wasn't sure, and this is maybe a question for Charlotte, because you're more widely knowledgeable of this area, period of history than I am. If this hadn't been a people's friend story, if this had been in one of the competitor magazines or something like that, do you think they'd have taken a, a more, um, do you think there'd be more confrontation in that last section of the story? That is a good question. I think, oh, do you know, quite honestly, by the 1930s, I'm going to put my kind of uh, head on the line and I'm going to say there aren't many competitors. The People's Friend is the kind of dominant women's magazine or even it's just the dominant fiction magazine by that point. So the answer to that question is yes. If it had been in a slightly more, um, if it had been in a modernist magazine, for example, one that was sort of coveting uh, literature by people who were maybe reading uh, D.H. Lawrence or Virginia Woolf, then yes, perhaps there would have been a slightly more negative ending (laughs) or a slightly more um, sensational kind of um, upsetting or... Soap opera ending. There might have actually been an argument rather than just a little bit of like, you said that, you said that, okay, right, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly in the realm that the People's Friend occupies, which is... um, nice, wholesome, non-threatening, easy to read, accessible magazines, then I kind of think this is a very good story that would have easily sailed through the kind of hands of readers as they passed it around, to be honest. Hmm. The other thing about this story, and I don't know whether, I don't think it's what it might have affected where it appears in the annual, is actually it's the last story in the annual. Mm, Okay. So the annual, I'm assuming, needs to finish on a an upbeat so I've, I've not read the other 15 or so stories which are in the annual so i don't know whether they're all kind of quite similar but yeah i, I suppose you're not going to end an annual with a doom and gloom story true or a cliffhanger you wouldn't do that either would you unless you really wanted to drive up sales <laughs> <laughs> tune in next week yeah exactly <laughs> no yeah i think you're spot on david it's definitely a wrapping up kind of close the book put it down get back to work with a, a smile on your face kind of uh, message. I didn't um, either go back to work or have a smile on my face. Uh, <laughs> just, I think just getting to the end of that, like David, I got to the end or I, the end was coming and I was thinking he's going to come in here and kick that door down and chuck it out. And I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then absolutely nothing happens she, she's like yeah so your father was dying and i didn't bother telling you and uh, you've wandered about in the world not knowing that you had an inheritance that i've been trying to give to my son um saws and <laughs> and he just goes all right then let's forget about well the that. color did rise in his cheeks okay yeah the color rose in jeffrey hillier's face it's like that's about as angry as he got is, is that the 1930s equivalent of getting really angry? Probably. I know. Well, I got more. I got angry with Jeffrey. I got really annoyed with him um, for not having it out. But maybe that's just how I'd have dealt with it rather than how he dealt with it. <laughs> and the other thing that got me is, is if he's so fond of his half-brother Dick, why were there no letters in the in-between time? You know, why did he just disappear off the face of the earth? I, I thought that he, he might have kept in some level of contact. That's because the lawyer took the letters, guys. Oh, you've really got it in for this lawyer, haven't you? <laughs> the lawyer was like, oh, hi, morning, there's been any post. Great, I'll take that. Thank you very much. It's Cumberbatch. I, th- I think for a, a modern reader, the ending is frustrating because you do want her to get her comeuppance and you do want Jeffrey to show a bit of grit and, <laughs> and actually say, hang on a minute, this is not on. But maybe, maybe again, you know, it, it's about Dick, isn't it? It's it's the the regard that Jeffrey has for Dick. He doesn't want to throw his mother out onto the, the streets, I'm sure. It's all quite stiff upper lip, isn't it? And this is the proper way to behave. Don't let emotions get in the way. Yeah, I think if that had happened and and she had been kind of found out and there had been an argument or something and then maybe she got banished or something and the new family came in, that's like Tessa the Durbervilles, do you know what I mean? It's still, <laughs> yeah. It changes the whole kind of emphasis and it changes the purpose of what the story is, in my opinion, which is just to say 
you know, we can work it out, guys. And um, it doesn't have to be this bad. And actually, she has a complete kind of about face of her character, doesn't she? She kind of gets all kind of dippy about the Mm -hmm. kids. And she has this like second motherhood in some ways is the way it's almost described. You wonder if Dick's watching that and he's like, you weren't like that when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) But he becomes the loving uncle, doesn't he? I think mm-hmm. it's like the, the, the language is, it, I mean, it's all happy ever after, isn't Which it? Which is very typical of a people's friend story. It is mm-hmm. a bit. Exactly. We, we've talked about it in previous episodes, um, at least one where we wondered whether the ending had been subbed in mm-hmm. because it kind of suddenly gets, it, suddenly it's all very rosy. But I can't imagine them doing that to Annie in her very own annual I wouldn't have thought no. so. It, it's beautifully laid out in the page um, in terms of the way that it sits. So there's no editorial tack on here that I can see. There are some fantastic adverts next to it. <laughs> what do we have? Oh, there's. Um, you can send off for a uh, an Annie Swan coupon so you can actually cut something out of the annual uh, and send it off to get a, uh, a Vienna mud tub sent to you, which is some sort of face cream. Um, which comes in plain packaging in capital letters. So obviously you don't want people to know you're taking <laughs> these kind of things. And another one about superfluous hair. <laughs> I think what we probably should also share actually is the illustration that starts the story because each of the stories in the novel has a really beautifully engraved illustration that goes at the front of it. And the scene on this one shows um, Dick sitting down in a big leather armchair wearing a suit with what looks like an amazingly slim waist. It could just be the way it is done with his mother standing up. It's the 19 year old Dick, I think, um, with his mother standing up saying, it's absurd, Dick. Lucilia, uh, Lucia um, said angrily one day, how can Jeffrey still be alive? Every possible means has been taken to find him and they have failed. So that's essentially the introduction to the story for the reader. What a liar. She's such a liar. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we've, we've come to the perfect point for me to introduce a new feature in the podcast. I'm going to ask the guests to rate the stories that we're reading Um I'm going to say out of 10, because that's because I make arbitrary decisions like that. Over every episode, we're going to keep uh, a kind of league table of the stories. And the story with the highest score at the end of the season, we're aiming to publish in the magazine. With that in mind, guests, you are the first people to rate a story, which means you are setting the weighting of these scores. So don't just give it a 10 because you you feel like you have to give it a 10 because down the line we might get a story that's better that doesn't win. We're also going to ask via social media and also um, reviews of the podcast if people want to give the stories their own scores. We'll start keeping track of them as well and we can use them in the final reckoning. But uh, here you go. This is your this is the high pressure moment for the end of the podcast. Um, What score would you give this story? I think I would probably give it uh, like a seven because actually it was quite entertaining for me. And even though I've maybe been a bit cynical about some of the characters and their motivations, I quite like that when there's maybe somebody who's a bit duplicitous. So, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go with that. Seven is a strong score. Um, Angela, what do you think? It's a tricky one. Um, The story is is very much of its time in the way in which it's told. Um, so the the language, as we've already talked about, is quite verbose and the sentences are quite long. However, it is really well-crafted and uh, you don't guess the ending. <laughs> uh, it's intriguing to guess at the characters' motivations as well and what's going on in the bits that Annie doesn't tell you. So I think I would give this a seven as well. Consistency, I like that. We don't have it often in this podcast. (laughs) Charlotte and I often agree on things, I think you'll find. (laughs) (laughs) And David, what do you think? Mm, I I was thinking a seven, seven and a half, because I actually really like the story. I'd have given it slightly more if Jeffrey had got a backbone. (laughs) (laughs) If there'd been just a little bit of kind of like, I know exactly what you've done and you need to understand that I know that you did it what you did was bad I might have given it a bit more so I think he's he's spoiled it for me because actually I agree with Angela it's a really well crafted short story 
Um, and I really love the characterization of most of them. But Jeffrey, I think she missed a trick with Jeffrey. I think there should have been something there, but I appreciate it's for moralistic reasons. So I'm going to go seven and a half because I was pleasantly surprised because I thought it was going to be a slog of a story. But because um, <laughs> uh, of my previous um, uh, encounters with Annie's work um, and her novels. So I would have given it more if it, if Jeffrey had been there, but seven and a half from me. Excellent. That is a. I feel like that's a a good bar to set. Um, I guess we'll we'll find out as the season goes on if anyone will be able to best Annie. Um, I, it's, it's practically treasonous actually to think that for people from the People's Friend. But there I'm you sure are. Agnes Mitchell is somewhere there, kind of coming <laughs> up in the background. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to see what other authors we can dig up that can present a challenge for Annie. Um, so that's it for this episode. It just remains for me to say thank you to Angela for manfully struggling through reading that story. And thank you to David and Charlotte as well. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6. And that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend. <laughs>